This passage should also remind followers of Christ that we are not called to political insurrection. Caesar provides roads and services and therefore has a right to a certain share of our coin, just as God has a right to our worship, love, and service. The Apostle Paul further develops this obligation in Romans 13, 1-7. Jesus was no mere political revolutionary. That was never his way of bringing the kingdom. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. Jesus was no mere political revolutionary, but the gospel of Jesus does have implications for all of human life, personal, emotional, spiritual, social, civil, and political. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 22. In chapter 21, we observe Jesus rejecting the whole system of religion that had grown up around the temple in Jerusalem. They had missed the whole point. They had become obsessed with minutia, and they had mismanaged all the blessings and all the gifts that had been given by the Lord. They were a dry and withered fig tree that offered absolutely nothing to the poor and weary of the world. And Jesus presented himself as God's intended replacement. Now, we have to be careful whenever we use that word. Replacement theology is a slur that is often used to discredit certain theological positions. So I want to be clear. I am not saying that the church replaces Israel. I'm saying that Jesus replaces Israel. Jesus is Israel. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is everything. If the New Testament is clear about anything, it is clear about that. And if you're reading the Bible and coming up with something else that is central other than Jesus, you're reading it wrong. Jesus is saying to the poor travelers in this world, don't bother going to the temple. You won't find anything there. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As I said, if the New Testament is clear about anything, it is clear about that. Jesus is offering himself as an alternative to the entire Jewish system. And the current leaders of the Jewish system are not confused by this at all. They understand what Jesus is saying. At the end of chapter 21, Matthew says, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So they understand what Jesus is saying. And and that's why they begin to take steps to arrest and kill him. There are only two options on the table here, and the chief priests and the Pharisees intend to eliminate one of them. That's the story we're reading here in chapter 22. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest 
seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. We should obviously understand this as a third parable directed against the Jewish leaders. This time, presumably after many or most of them have departed, much of the imagery is similar. This time there's a king who stands for God. And again, messengers of the king are treated shamefully and even killed by those we would have expected to be guests of honor at the upcoming feast. That the king will send troops to destroy their city seems to look forward to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. The gathering in of both good and bad reminds us that God's grace is often surprising and that many who are last shall be first in the kingdom of heaven. The story has a surprising climax. We pick it up in verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. D.A. Carson helps us understand what's going on here. He says, Whether one is good or bad... There is an appropriate attire for this wedding feast, closed quote. R.T. France says something very similar. He says, Though entry to God's salvation is free for all, it is not, therefore, without standards or to be taken lightly. It was the claim to belong without an appropriate change of life which characterized the old Israel and brought about its rejection. The new people of God must not fall into the same error, closed quote. That's the main point being made in that final paragraph. We'll be surprised by who is and who isn't included in the kingdom of heaven, but they will all have gained entry in the same manner. They will all be garbed in the robe of righteousness provided by Jesus Christ. Anyone not so arrayed will be bound hand and foot And cast into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, They marveled, and they left him and went away. This is an obvious attempt to turn the crowd against Jesus, making him easier to apprehend. 
paying taxes to Rome was deeply unpopular. If Jesus supported it, he would likely lose a great many of his followers. On the other hand, if he forbade the paying of taxes, it would make it a lot easier to build a case against him that would be compelling to Pilate. So it was a win-win from the perspective of Jesus' opponents. But Jesus turns the encounter against them by asking for the coin with which the tax would be paid. Coins from the reign of Tiberius Caesar were considered blasphemous to most Jews in Jesus' day. They had an image of Tiberius on one side and the inscription, highest priest or pontiff maxim on the other. Therefore, no pious Jew would wish to handle one. The fact that they were able to produce one immediately put them on the wrong foot with the crowd. Jesus' brilliant saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's, pleased the crowd and left his opponents no room to accuse him. This passage should also remind followers of Christ that we are not called to political insurrection. Caesar provides roads and services and therefore has a right to a certain share of our coin, just as God has a right to our worship, love, and service. The Apostle Paul further develops this obligation in Romans 13, 1-7. Jesus was no mere political revolutionary. That was never his way of bringing the kingdom. All right, so as I said in the intro, Jesus was no mere political revolutionary, but the gospel does have important social and political implications, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. What's amazing about the story in Matthew 22 is that Jesus refuses to play the game or to accept the categories suggested to him by his opponents. They wanted him to pick a side. They wanted him to come down on the side of the Jewish revolutionaries, which would give them a way to get Jesus arrested. Or they wanted him to come down on the side of their Roman overlords, which would have cost Jesus in terms of favor with the crowd. But Jesus rejected the entire premise of their question. He said, it's not either or, it's both and and in proper relation. Okay, unpack that for me a little bit. What do you mean by both and and in proper relation? Sure, well, by saying render unto Caesar... Jesus acknowledged that Caesar has some legitimate claims over the lives of citizens. And you're using the term Caesar in a metaphorical sense, right? Right. I, I'm using Caesar as a stand-in for lawful government or for the power of the state. Jesus doesn't say, don't give Caesar anymore. Don't, don't pay your taxes because only God is king and Caesar is a usurper who needs to be thrown down. He doesn't say that. And the apostles following Jesus don't say that either. In Romans 13, the Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, 
revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's Romans 13, 1 to 7. So Paul basically just expands upon what Jesus is saying here when he said, render unto Caesar. He is saying, God put Caesar in charge. And so he is due a certain amount of loyalty, a certain amount of respect, and a certain portion of your income. Wait a minute, though. Caesar was a pretty bad guy, if I've got my history straight. I mean, Nero was Caesar in the time of the Apostle Paul, and he was no fan of Christianity, to put it lightly. Are you saying that we should support even an anti-Christian government? I'm saying what Paul said. I'm saying what Jesus said. I'm saying that even godless government has certain rights and a certain legitimacy and should be respected and honored as such. Listen, you you know what's worse than godless government? Hmm. No government. (laughs) Anarchy is the worst state for human beings to live in, and anarchy is what you get when people refuse to respect the government unless the government believes and affirms everything that they believe and affirm. Which is kind of where we're headed, it seems, here in this country. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the point is that Jesus does say, and the apostles do affirm, that as Christians, we should respect and be subject to the government, even when that government doesn't believe what we believe or support all the things that we think should be supported. Even still, we need to render unto Caesar what Caesar is due. But then you said something else, too. You said both and, referring to God and state, but then you said, in the right order. Unpack that for us. Right. So Jesus doesn't say that you know God is in charge of this realm over here, the inner life of people, their thoughts and emotions and worship, and then Caesar is in charge of the outer life of people over there, the roads they walk on, the wars they fight in, the taxes they, they pay, etc. No, rather, he positions Caesar's authority as a subset of God's authority. What do you mean by that? Well, I I mean that in the Bible, the government is spoken of similarly to how parents are spoken of. God is king over all, but in the fifth commandment, he tells children to obey their parents. So obeying your parents is obeying God, and that's what Jesus is doing here. God is still king over all, but within his authority, he delegates certain authority to Caesar, and therefore When we obey Caesar, we are obeying God. But seeing it like that puts limits on Caesar's authority and suggests limits in terms of our obedience to Caesar. Right, and that's where it gets complicated, isn't it? Because how do we know when we should obey Caesar or not? Exactly. But the Bible is not unaware of that dilemma, and it provides resources to help us navigate our way through that. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested by their civil authorities, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're brought before the council and reminded, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. That's Acts 5, 28 to 29. So from passages like that, the church has generally believed and taught While we should generally submit to and obey our government leaders, if the government forbids you to do what God commands or commands you to do what God forbids, then you must disobey the government so as to obey God. Caesar's authority is never allowed to trump God's authority. 
Okay, using your analogy, I'm assuming the same applies to parents. If your parents tell you to go get an abortion or lie to your professor or move in with your girlfriend before getting married, you should disobey your parents in that scenario because obeying them would be disobeying God. Is that right? That's exactly right. In general, we should obey our parents. In general, we should obey the government. But if either of those lesser but lawful authorities forbids us to do what God commands or commands us to do what God forbids, then we should disobey the lesser authority so as to honor the ultimate authority. Okay, that was complicated, (laughs) but I get it. And you know what? I'm super glad that we took the time to walk through that because that is a big issue right now. As the government here in Canada begins to drift further and further away from its Judeo-Christian heritage, we're hearing people say that, hey, we're not obligated to honor them and we can reject their authority and do whatever seems right to us. But that would lead to chaos and anarchy. But at the same time, there are going to be certain things that we can't go along with as Christians. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think you are. And, And when that happens, I think we'll need to be cautious And we'll need to be collaborative. We can't just have every individual Christian deciding when and when not to obey the government. I think these decisions are to need to be made carefully with counsel and in consultation with our local churches. And as much as possible, in consultation with other local churches across the nation. And the issues need to be clear. The issue in Acts 5 was that the apostles were forbidden to preach in Jesus' name. That's a very clear case of being forbidden to do what God commands. But if the issue is not clear, then I think we just need to be very cautious, lest we find ourselves fighting against God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see how that definitely could happen. All right, again, I'm glad we took the time to walk through that. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us, the first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. This is clearly a made-up story intended to embarrass Jesus. The Sadducees did not believe in an afterlife per se, and they did not credit the latter portions of the Old Testament as Scripture. Therefore, they found the notion of a personal resurrection preposterous, and they've invented this story to trap Jesus in what they perceive to be an indefensible position. Verse 29, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. What an incredibly insightful saying that is. All error springs from the same source. He quotes to them actually from the part of the Bible they do claim to credit 
in order to show them that they don't really even understand the Bible that they read, nor do they understand the power of the God they claim to worship. He will surely keep the promises that he has made to his people, be they alive at the present or dead. This certainty assumes the resurrection. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is often referred to as the great commandment, obviously as a companion to the great commission. Jesus summarizes the kingdom ethic as love for God and love for neighbor. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There were disputes in Judaism at that time as to whether there would be one Messiah or two. Some expected a Messiah in the line of David and a Messianic figure in the line of Levi, thus a a king and a priest. Jesus thus directs their attention to Psalm 110, a Psalm of David, wherein David refers to the Lord saying to my Lord, well, one of those my Lords must be God, but who then is the other? It must be Messiah, David's son. That David calls him my Lord suggests that he was greater than David, greater than just a king. As we read the psalm, we discover that he was also a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Thus, the Messiah is king and priest and greater by far than his father David. If that's all in the Bible then who do you teachers of the law, you scribes and rulers of the people, who do you say that the Messiah is? That's a good question. And no one could answer him a word. No wonder they dared ask him nothing further. Jesus is who he is. He is who the scriptures say he is. And he is always in control of every situation. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I'm really intrigued by that idea you were discussing at the end of the program audio there about Jesus bringing together these two streams of Old Testament anticipation, the priestly stream and the kingly stream. If I'm not mistaken, you covered that at some length in the recent podcast series you released on the book of Zechariah, did you not? Yeah, it shows up a couple of times in the book of Zechariah, but really powerfully near the end of chapter 6. In that chapter, the prophet commands for some rich returnees who've come back to Jerusalem from the Babylonian exile to contribute gold and silver so that a special crown can be made that will 
symbolically be placed upon the high priest's head, but then after that stored in a special chamber in the temple. Now, of course, crowns don't normally go on the heads of priests. They go on the heads of kings. So putting this crown on the high priest, even for a moment, was something of a surprise. D.A. Carson, commenting on this really interesting passage in Zechariah, says, That is so stunning that some contemporary commentators want to amend the text. Surely the ruler with the crown is the Davidic king, they argue, not the high priest. Others think this reflects a much later time when the priests picked up more political power. But the truth is simpler. Here, God brings together into one figure both the kingly symbolism and the priestly functions. His name is the branch. New Testament readers cannot doubt where the fulfillment is found, closed quote. I would agree. Indeed, they cannot doubt that. In fact, this is one of the major themes of the New Testament. Jesus is not just the Christ, the son of David. He's also the prophet par excellence. And he is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. In Christ, all the streams of prophetic anticipation join into one great and glorious flow. Thanks be to God. Yeah, wow, that is cool. And if you want to learn more about that, you can find that Zachariah series over on the Into the Word website. Just go to intotheword.ca. You can also download the Into the Word app at the iTunes store or on Google Play. And you can connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.